You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hello, I'm Mark Buckingham, and you're listening to the Epic Marvel Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Epic Marvel Podcast. This is Generation X episode 1A, covering a period of Generation X from 1994, uh, right to the end of 94, actually. We're not going to move on to 95 in this episode. I am your host, Curtis Findlay. And I am your Generation X host, Gabriel Bustamantes. Right on. I am so excited to have you on the show as my co-host, Gabe, because I know that you are such a fan of 90s comics and also 90s X-Men. Oh, this is this is right in my wheelhouse. Like this is what people refer to as like a honeypot scheme <laughs> where this is how you trick me into coming on to like podcast or conversations or anything is those magical words 90s comics. <laughs> That's great. So uh, for the people who aren't familiar with who you are, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. What do you do? And why do you uh, what's your what's your first memory of Generation X? All right. So uh, people might know me from the YouTube channel Omni Bros Live, uh, which is one of the the big uh, omnibus channels on YouTube. I've been around. I, I worked at, I opened Torpedo Comics in Las Vegas. I was a part of uh, that franchise for a few years. A lot of people in the comic community know me from there. Uh, you might know me from my own YouTube channel, Gabe Loves 90s Comics, uh, which is very fitting uh, and appropriate for today's conversation. Uh, I'm a big seller on whatnot. Uh, I've been in comic books, you know, over 30 years, collecting, selling, buying. Uh, So really big into that whole aspect. Uh, 90s comics is where I grew up. That's, again, like I said, that's my sweet spot. Uh, And I think my earliest memories of Generation X is um, actually because of Gen 13. Ah, right. Because when Gen 13 was first coming out, uh, Jim Lee had to, something along the lines caused Jim Lee to delay the release of Gen 13 because of the uh, the title was originally called Generation 13. Oh, okay. And I was too close to Generation X. So there was a big delay and they had to change it to Gen 13. So there wasn't like this big kind of uh, convoluted confusion between Gen 13 and Generation X. Uh, and that was like, oh, well, that's very interesting. And then I just kind of rolled with that through because that was all in Wizard Magazine right. back then. And then that led up into I was reading X-Men at the time. I was reading Uncanny at the time because this is right in that era where right after, you know, the big 90s boom and Jim Lee was on X-Men. I was following it all since then. So I kind of just went along with X-Men all the way to it. But the first time I heard Generation X was because of that Gen 13 confusion uh, in the article of uh, a Wizard magazine. So this is one of my favorite times, my favorite eras. And did you check out Generation X uh, after that? Did you jump on board? Oh, yeah, definitely. It's the stuff that we're going to be talking about today. So it was, you know, the the ending middle section of the Phalex Covenant and, yep, directly right into that Generation X number one. 
with that shiny hollow foil chromium cover. <laughs> yes. That is just just a, a beautiful, beautiful piece of Christopher Chalo art that we'll talk about, I'm sure. Yep. But that is I have a I actually have a nine point eight of that. Whoa. Just because I love Generation X so much. Uh but yeah, so yeah, I definitely went in through Uncanny and X-Men because of Phalex Covenant, and I could not stay away because we'll talk about it on the show. But these characters that were introduced in that Phalex Covenant were just perfect for me. They were like my age. They were totally suited for me. We'll talk more about skin and kind of my my relationship with skin. Okay. And all of that is really coming out of this era. And just I have fond, fond memories of all of this. That's very cool. Uh, when I, I'm probably a, a, got to be around the same age if you're talking that these characters are the sa- same age as you. Uh, we're, I'm probably around the same age as you. So these characters also, it was perfect. It's like the new mutants were too old for me. Uh, and but these ones were exactly the right spot. And uh, and at the time, I was buying a lot of number one issues because Marvel Marvel was having some issues in the '90s, and they did a lot of you know rebooting their titles and trying to get people to jump on with number ones. Like this is a big deal, and first issue collector's item, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and so uh, I I was not planning on getting this book at all, but uh, my cousin bought it for me for Christmas, the Christmas of 94, because he knew that I was just buying some number one issues. And then my brother got me for that same Christmas issues number two and three. And um, and then I read those three and I was hooked. Like after that, it was like, this is this is it. This is the this is the book for me. I stayed on for the entire 75 issues, which I never did for any other title except for like Ultimate Spider-Man. And uh, but that's the impact that it had. It's just such a different type of a book. And I love it. I love it so much. And we're so we'll go through um, hopefully as Marvel keeps producing these epic collections, we'll keep doing these episodes and not all of Generation X is at the top level. Like there's a lot of kind of dips. It goes up and down quite a bit. And but we will talk Mm -hmm. about it for better or for worse uh, through through these. I'm thinking that they're going to be collecting them in six volumes, a total of six volumes. Wow. I didn't think there's going to be that many. That's great. Because I know they just, you and Omar, Omar, who was also a part of Omni Bros, did the announcements recently on some of the epic collections. And volume two of Generation X was in there. Yeah. And I was so excited because me and you already had this set up and we were were already kind of just waiting to kind of get the date set. And I was reading. And then it was like, oh man, Generation X volume two was just announced just in time because now me and Curtis can get, can chat about it too and just I've been bombarded I've been living in Generation X for the last couple of weeks that is and awesome it's not a bad thing and there is so much for this title to offer it's, so I remember when Wizard had uh, when Wizard Magazine was a thing Generation X number one was in like the top spot of their hot 10 books of the of the month for like I don't know like a year or something like that like it stayed in that top spot for a very unusual amount of time for a book and and then it even stayed in the top 10 for even longer than that it was there for a long time yeah I mean it as much as this, and you're absolutely correct, I remember that I have the same memories of you, that Generation X, Generation X, Generation X, Generation X, it was always being talked about in Wizard Magazine, I felt like. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Generation X even had their own toy line yep. uh, that they got. Uh, I'm sure we'll, we'll, we'll discuss it a little bit later on or, or whatever. I'm sure it'll come up in some conversation. It even had a made-for-TV movie. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right? 
And I mean yeah. that this is back in this is back in you know the late '90s where you it's not like today where everything is a fantastic awesome comic book movie or TV show and and they come back to back to back to back like we have we are living in a wealth of comic book movies and TV shows. But back then, we got nothing. So for something like Generation X to kind of be that much of a breakaway hit that it got a, you know, a made-for-TV movie. But I just, I don't hear anybody besides you and me, Curtis, who's ever really mentioned yeah. Generation X in probably the last, like, 15, 20 years. I know, it's, right? It's, it's, it, just, it just disappeared. It, it was. Did. It was a massive explosion, and then it just kind of just trickled away. And it may, yeah. you know, that might have to do with it being, you know, that era of, of '90s comics where the the boom happened, and then you know all the uh, distributor wars happened, and that would kind of broke the industry for a little bit. And this got just got lost in the shuffle because there was just so much at the time, and people just probably stuck with the core X Men books. But I just this just disappeared. Like I don't know what happened to it. I forgot it ran for seventy five issues. I was like, oh, it really lasted that long? Like I was yeah. digging through my long boxes, and I still have like I think I I, I was like through issue like thirty, I think. And I think that I just fell off. Like maybe that's you know when I, I started moving out and I, I became an adult and I just lost track of Generation X. But I was like, oh wow, seventy five issues. Yeah, it lasted for a long time. It hung on, yeah. and uh, I think a lot of people are in the same boat as you. They stuck around for about the first thirty issues, and so and that's when we see the the original creative team step off the book and they hand it over to other people. And from that point on, it doesn't have the same sort of feel as this first volume the first couple of volumes so mm -hmm. uh the, yeah i think and that's why it got lost i think it just because it didn't keep that same sort of you know pseudo underground feel trying not trying not to be a superhero book it it it, it changed and people didn't pay attention to it as much and yeah. and yeah like it's not just 75 issues but there's like there there's a there's a holiday special they had um quite a few annuals they had um uh, age of apocalypse yeah it was a very integral part of the age of apocalypse yeah um yeah it was just everywhere uh so i'm i'm very happy to be going through this through these epic collections because it looks like they've done a really good job of of mapping this first volume and then uh, and then the second volume will take us up to almost up to the issue 25 which is kind of the end of the very first era of generation x so we're, what we're going to talk about today is uncanny x-men numbers 316 to 318 x-men 36 and 37 now this is part of the phalanx covenant uh, which we'll talk about in a little bit and then we're going to talk about generation x numbers one to four and that'll take us right up to age of apocalypse and then in the next episode we'll talk about age of apocalypse and we'll get on to uh, all the way to the end of issue number nine but we'll have to mention that the age of apocalypse uh, issues are not in the epic collection it's true. Yeah, Epic Collection yeah. has not collected any of the Age of Apocalypse issues at all. They skip right over them. But we are going to include them in our conversation because they're just awesome. <laughs> and it just it just it, it happened after what issue four. So this book barely got its like its legs going, and then bam, the, the biggest X Men crossover of all time completely steals the spotlight for three months. Yeah, and it actually does a good job of helping us understand these characters better by placing them in a completely different setting. We understand mm -hmm. their, 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 the, the, these characters in, in a different perspective, which gives us insight to the way they are in the regular 616 universe. So that'll be really cool to compare uh, those characters as we go through those issues as well. Yep. Okay, uh, we have some comments 
on Facebook and on Twitter and Instagram. A lot of people chimed in to let us know what they thought of Generation X of these early issues. So Taylor says, the art really pops out of the page. You can tell that this is the book that cemented Chris Pacello as a great X artist. Ever since, he just keeps on coming back to one of the X titles. And it's cool seeing the beginning of his art style pre-highs as uh, 2008 Spider-Man and, uh, and 2012 X-Men, which are the titles that he's kind of most recently been associated with. Mm-hmm. X-Men Consumer Reviews on Twitter says, Bacello's unconventional approach to comics makes Generation X a fresh and unique addition to the X-Line worth reading. I love that comment. Unconventional approach is very true. And I'll point out some of those things as we go through the artwork uh, because there's some really cool stuff he does. Uh, Simon says, it was far better than I was expecting. I finished it in two days, which is far quicker than usual when it comes to Epic Collections. Yeah, that's a good sign. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't put it down either. It's, it's definitely a, an easy, fun read. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Mister Rice, or Mr. Reese, I think. Mr. Reese says on uh, Instagram, he says, this is probably the Epic I've been most looking forward to. Gen X was the first comic I regularly read as I was getting into comics. And as a preteen, I basically wanted to grow up to be Skin or Jubilee. Reading it now, I still think it's a fantastic comic, especially some of those early ones where Lobdell and Bicello are firing on all cylinders. Even when Bicello steps off the title, the stories are charming and engaging. I, for one, enjoy the leprechauns. <laughs> That's good. Um, it's fun to see the development of characters we know now so well, such as Emma and Monet and Sean. And Sean becomes really fascinating here, as well as very handsome. Love this. And he has a has- hashtag justice for skin. Oh, that's so true. Skin gets the short end of the stick, which we'll probably discuss in the final volume of the Epic Collections. <laughs> okay, another comment from Kem Chops on Instagram says, I vaguely remember this when uh, when this came out in single issues. How can you vaguely remember? It was it was everywhere. <laughs> that, that, that cover is unforgettable. Yeah. And, so, and he goes on to say, I wasn't so interested because I didn't like Banshee or Emma. Reading this now, I made a huge mistake. He says, the art is amazing. It is engaging and completely comes right off the page. The storylines are fine, but the more I read, the more I want to know all about the characters. One of the best epic collections so far. Very cool comment. I, I agree with him. Uh, Sean on the team is going into it is kind of, you know, that character that I didn't know about. I was like, I was like, this, who's this Banshee character? Why is he, you know, the leader of this team? Mm-hmm. So I can see where he's coming from. I felt the same way about Banshee. Okay, just a couple more comments here on on Facebook. Eric says, Chris Bicello, Mark Buckingham are one of the greatest pencil and ink combos of all time. I might agree with you there. I was drawn to the book by the wraparound Chromium cover and stayed for the art, and they are the reasons I was drawn to Ghost Rider 2099 as well. Uh, Jason Hicks says, Gen X came out for me at the time when my comic collecting was starting to decline, so I never really gave it a chance. I've heard many good things in particular of, about this particular title, good and bad, so I'm really looking forward to reading the title now and listening along to this podcast to hear your insights into this series. Thanks. I'm glad to hear that, Jason. 
uh, some goofball named Gabe commented on Facebook and said, this is the magnificent, gorgeous, thought-provoking seminal series that inspired the made-for-TV movie. <laughs> I agree with that guy. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, and Jesse says, the most iconic pick of Jubilee by Bacello, and he posts a picture of the second page of the first issue where she's sitting on the park bench pointing at her watch. Such a good image. And he says, I love the vertigo aesthetic that Bacello brought to the X-Men, which is a great comment because, of course, Bacello cut his teeth in the Vertigo world before he jumped into the superhero world. And then last comment here, Nick Jones says, I read the series back when it came out, but I haven't done a dive into this epic just yet. Need to do that soon. I agree, Nick. Got to do it soon. Okay, those are all of our comments, and I think we can move on to our the next part of our episode. Uh, but just before I want to do that, I want to say that this episode is brought to you by Dying Breed Collectors. And if you go to dyingbreedcollectors.com and enter the code Epic Marvel Podcast, you'll get 10% off of any Epic collections that you can find in their store there. And as a bonus for the month of uh, December 2021, you can enter the code and get 15% off of Generation X Epic Collection Volume 1. So if you like our conversation here that we're talking about and you're interested in checking out this book, head over there and uh, pick up this volume, Generation X Volume 1, uh, for a good 15% off. I'm going to be playing a lot of clips from the creative team of the of Generation X. I did these interviews a few years back when I was doing a, a special series of interviews surrounding Generation X's 25th anniversary. And we're going to hear these clips here, but you can search my website to see if you can find all of the interviews in full because they are all quite fascinating. But first, let's start with Scott Lobdell just talking about the origins of Generation X. Well, originally the editor-in-chief, Bob Harris, said to me, uh, you know, because they had X-Force out, and so they didn't have a New Mutants book. And he said, let's do uh, New Mutants, and you could, you know, do something with it. And I was like, okay. So over that weekend, I was thinking about the things I liked about the New Mutants and the things I didn't like. And one of the things I didn't like, I kind of didn't like about the afternoon in general, was like the fact that there's so many what I call uh, Ken and Barbie mutants in the sense that everybody's like, really good looking and they have great bodies and everything is perfect and if they just didn't use their powers they would be fine but you know Jean Grey is a perfect example like you know she's like oh I'm a mutant it's like well you don't really have to be a mutant you could just walk around society and somebody would just be like oh you're really hot so right. but to me like the mutants that are cool and the superheroes that were cool are like Nightcrawler and Thing and you know characters that couldn't change their appearance but you know but like I mean like think of the new mutants the only new mutant I can think of, and I could be wrong, I'm just making this up, but the only new mutant I can think of is Rain, the werewolf girl. Right, yeah, Wolfsbane. And even she could turn it on and off. And then uh, Sunspot, and even he could turn his powers on and off. And so I was like, you know what, I want to invent, I mean, I want to work with a bunch of characters that can't turn off their powers, you know, like Skin and Chamber and Penance. You know, it's like, let's look at what happens when, you know, you have like the really good looking characters and the really horrific characters and, you know, mm -hmm. bump them up against each other. And so then I was thinking, you know, we've seen the school a hundred times at that point, the mansion. And I thought, well, what if, you know, where could they go? And I'm like, oh, they could go to, uh, you know, Massachusetts Academy because all the Hellions died. So maybe that becomes Xavier's school and Xavier's school becomes the, 
Xavier Institute since it's not really school anymore. And so by the end of the weekend, when I saw Bob on Monday, I said, you know what? I will do New Mutants, but I don't want to do New Mutants. I want to call it Generation X. And I want it to be about, you know, a bunch of new kids and a bunch of, uh, it would be at the Massachusetts Academy. And at the time, I had only thought of Banshee because I always liked him as a character and he was a cop. And I thought, okay, well, it's a good training thing. And, you know, he wasn't super violent like Cable and he wasn't a pacifist like Xavier. He was more practical because he'd been, you know, an Interpol agent. He'd been a New York cop. And then it was only afterwards when I was thinking, oh, my God, you know, that'd be so cool if Emma was on the group. And I thought, you know, she'd feel bad because all the Hellions got killed. So maybe everybody would be like, well, we don't want you in charge of these kids. But Xavier would understand that she had something to prove by right. this group. So it was all, you know, so it all kind of started, you know, very organically. But it was never, uh, the goal was to try to not make it like the X-Men or like the New Mutants or any other group. And, you know, when Chris and I finally started designing it and the designs were coming in, people were, would stop by and they'd be like, oh, that's cool, but where's the Wolverine character? Where's the Colossus character? Like, where's the big, where's Maul? Where's, you know? And we said, we don't want to do any, I mean, like, our biggest character was uh, Mondo and Mondo was just a big, you know, Samoan and Hawaiian t-shirt, you know? So it's like, <laughs> you know, we wanted to make a group that, because up until then, you got to figure there's like, you know, Cyberforce and Wildcats and Wetworks and right. all the New Mutants books, and everybody was always trying to do the X-Men, and we were like, we're going to do the not-X-Men. And I always thought, 25 years ago, that when we did it, that we were going to be the book that people started to knock off. But really, nobody has done it since. There's really not been any book that, like, you know, maybe, maybe the Umbrella Academy, you could argue, but, like, you know, like every time we've seen the New Mutants books or, you know, X-Men or New X-Men or all these other books that have come forth since, mm-hmm. there's never been that feel of Generation X. There's never been that feel of, like, you know, you know, you, you do a lot of team, but, like, I did uh, Teen Titans at one point, and they said you could have seven characters, but four of them have to be the core for Robin and Wonder Girl and da-da-da. And it was like, you know, when you look at Generation X, it really only had three characters that we knew, and then everybody else was brand new. Yeah. Which is like something that you really don't see very often anymore. And like this Generation X, I mean, you know, it looks good, but to me it looks like, you know, New Mutants and X-Men Academy and Avengers Academy. There's nothing like, you know, you don't look at it and go, oh, wow, that's what am I looking at? You know, Right. So, which I think was important at the time. Okay, Gabe, here we go. We are going to start with the Phalanx Covenant. Now, I know this is volume one, but is there anything that we need to know about the X-Men before reading this book? Well, actually, at this part of the series, this is like the middle ground for the Phalanx Covenant, who is a uh, techno-organic species who is trying to uh, rid the the world of all human-based organisms. So at that point, that's really where this series kind of picks up, is right in the middle of that. Scott and Gene are off on their honeymoon, so they're away from the team. We got uh, Charles Xavier's away from the team. So it's a very skeleton crew at this point. Maybe you can jump right into it right here with uh, Uncanny X-Men 316, Curtis, where we pick up. Yeah, sure. So this 
this issue, uh, I'm going to give a, um, a brief synopsis, just something that's short that you would find in like a, like a, a solicitation. So it's going to be very brief. Banshee Perfect. comes to the mansion and he's confused by some of the weird behavior by the X-Men team that he sees there from Angel, from Storm, Slylock, Gambit, and Bishop. He goes to investigate and finds out that they aren't exactly who they seem to be. And uh, because of that, he breaks Emma Frost and Sabretooth, who are captives there at the time and breaks them out of their prison so that he can fight, figure out how to save the X-Men, basically. Oh, and Jubilee's there too. So this is the formation of Generation X. These issues are included in this epic collection because we are bringing together our main cast. And we see a glimpse of that in the first few pages because this issue opens with like a teaser where Monet and I guess it's her caretaker or somebody or uh, or some yeah somebody uh, they get a, a she gets abducted by the phalanx and this is where we meet our big bad his name is Harvest and you you're talking about that toy line the Generation X toy line uh, they yep. actually made a character a toy of this guy Harvest in that yeah, toy line <laughs> what is yeah again it's just a it's just this kind of like one-off uh character but i guess they must have just did this so early that he was like the only villains that they had on the table for generation X. it's true these the, the toy line came out around the time of of the phalanx covenant so the only villains that generation x had fought at that time were the phalanx and M-Plate, who we'll meet in the first issue, and then the Orphan Maker from the fourth issue. Yeah. Uh, and then in the second, uh, in the, there's a second wave of Generation X toys as well. And then we get a Marrow action figure who's in the after Age of Apocalypse. And it's like, yeah, of all the people, and they don't even call him Harvest in the toy line. They just say Phalanx. Uh, what do you think of this opening issue? What What are your thoughts here? This is a good. I, I enjoy this issue from uh, start to finish. It starts off action packed, like it immediately turns into uh, an action film where it's basically like a diplomat's daughter getting kidnapped. Yeah. So you get that kind of cool action phase, and you get the the head of her security, you know, who pulls out a gun and just you know and and, and is shooting at you know at Harvest and doing nothing about it. And you're already, I was already completely intrigued with the idea of what's going on with the Phalax Covenant. Who's going on? Why are they after this girl? Who is this mute girl who doesn't talk? And we haven't said it yet, and I'm going to say it throughout this entire episode, so I apologize in advance. But Joe Mad yep. is fantastic. He is. Uh, this is his early, early stuff. But it doesn't take much longer until he turns into what you, what we all know as Joe Mad. But this is where he was cutting his teeth in, in the X. So he, we get to see some progression in his art through here, which is great. And right off the bat, we also get a mystery with the character of Monet because, like you said, she doesn't talk. We, mm -hmm. Something has happened in her life fairly recently, and we don't know what it is. Uh, but it's caused her to retreat inside herself, and she's basically kind of catatonic. Uh, she doesn't she doesn't do anything to stop herself from being kidnapped or anything like that. But we know she's a mutant because that's the Phalanx's thing: is that they are they want to destroy all of the mutants in order to save humanity. Uh, I absolutely also love the mystery aspect of this when when Sean walks into the mansion and it just things are just kind of not all right. 
and we we have no idea why. Well, I mean, we the reader know why because we have the uh, the you know we, we get to see the phalanx in action, so we kind of know what's going on. But I, I just love how Sean gets to figure it out himself and the steps that yeah, he takes it, to figure it out. And if, and if this is your first time jumping into this series, you'll feel like reading this part, you'll feel that kind of confusion and that awkwardness between the characters yeah. too. So if this is your first time reading into this material, then you know you'll get an extra kind of good feelings out of it. Oh, one important thing I think we need to know uh, is that Emma Frost's former students, like she's been a villain up to this point, mm-hmm. and she was in charge of a school of young mutants called the Hellions. And they all died just recently and kind of broke Emma. And she went a little crazy. And that's why she's kind of restrained and in custody here in the Xavier mansion. And that is a a turning point for her character. It's so odd for us to think now because this material is over 25 years old. Emma's been a hero on the X-Men for over 25 years now. It's almost at the point where she's been a hero longer than she was a villain. Yeah, and then also we want, we might want to point out too is that this is right after uh, up until this point she was inside of uh, Bobby Drake's body. Right. Yeah. They they mention it briefly in here, but that's another thing that to take an aspect too of, of of her character is how she broke into uh, Iceman's uh, mind and lived there, and they basically shared a body and the subconscious together for a while. And that stuff comes out a little bit later in this as well. But that again, I think, kind of really plays into uh, her uh, her aggression at being uh, held captive at this point too. Right. Of course. Yeah. And all of that will play into her becoming a hero, which is a very interesting transition. Uh, okay, so let's keep on going here to the second issue. Uh, this is X-Men number 36. Uh, I, I want to point out these covers. Do you remember these covers, Gabe, when they came out with the one little holographic stripe that went down the front? Yep. You can kind of see it here on the image here. You can see that it, it's, it looks kind of circuitry-like as yeah. a hologram. Yeah, it doesn't reproduce very well. Yeah. They, well, what's odd is that there's also a, uh, I don't know if it was like the new stand version or there was another like, you know, a non-deluxe version where instead of that hologram strip was just a, a red, solid red stripe. Yes. That was nothing special. It was just printed on. They could have used that to kind of make it, you know, look a little bit better too. So at this point, Marvel started experimenting with different types of paper. They were moving away from the standard newsprint and going for mm. some higher quality stock paper. So at this time, they they were actually releasing their books in two styles. They two would different have, formats. Yeah, two different yeah. formats. They'd have the regular newsprint format and they'd have what they called the deluxe version. And the early issues of Generation X, the first, I think the second and third issue were are also available in this format. Um, but yeah, it's the original, the the deluxe version had this holographic stripe and the regular version had just the red stripe. That's um, right. Yeah, but really nice. All of these phalanx covenants for not just these issues, but the ones that are not included in this in this collection are all wraparound covers and they all look very, very cool. I tell you, 90s was great for <laughs> amazing covers, gimmick covers. Yeah, that's a that's an Andy Kubert cover. Like, it's, it's fantastic. It is, absolutely. So we're into the phalanx covenant generation next part two. And this is where we find out a little bit about uh, Phalanx's plan here. They're gathering all of the, the, the kind of the new recruits, the people that Xavier hasn't um, recruited into the X-Men yet. They're trying to get all of them. 
and uh, they want to eliminate them so that they don't grow up to be X-Men, basically. What is strange to me is that they don't just kill them. They gather them all up and keep them all together. <laughs> I mean, for the sake of the story, they're not going to kill them, but it just seems odd that they <laughs> they just like, let's just hold them here. Yeah, let's take everything we that we feel is dangerous and keep them all in one spot together. Yeah. <laughs> This is the issue we are introduced to uh, Sink. His name is Sink, and this is Everett Thomas. But we don't know his Generation X name yet. But uh, uh, I love this introduction to him because he's just standing in his in his front doorstep of his apartment, and all of these police officers have guns drawn on him. And I feel like it's a little bit timely. It was timely back then, but now especially, you know, it's like the black man didn't do anything, but all these guys have these guns around him. Um, all these white cops with all guns. These, yeah, all these yeah. white cops with guns. And he's saying, is your intention to shoot me simply because I yelled too loud? <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but we find out that he was able to, he's able to uh, sync up with the mutant powers of mutants that are close to him. And so Banshee happened to be close by and Everett didn't know that. And so he just shouted and he like had a sonic scream like Banshee does. So very cool way to introduce the character. He gets hooked up with uh with banshee and Sabretooth as they are looking for the kids uh the other generation x character we're introduced to is Paige guthrie who gets kidnapped um amazing scene here where the phalanx completely destroy her house about well, Paige guthrie is a character we know because she is the the younger sister of uh, sam guthrie who is cannonball who is on the new mutants or x-force at this time i guess um, or what, was he on x-men by this point or is that after I think he was on X-Men at this point still. I'm not positive. I can't remember when he joined X-Men. It was during the Joe Mad era. So yeah, this is also uh, Sabretooth uh, as a a captive member of the team at this point. Right. Because of what happened last issue. A couple of issues before this, uh, he got captured by the X-Men and kind of been living in their danger room as Professor X has been trying to kind of, you know, subconsciously you know help him out with his aggression and make him a better person or whatever as professor x does and in the last issue uh yeah they had to break him out as a part of the the phalanx attack that happened Sabretooth, he ends up helping them in in this storyline but he's going to go through a very very dramatic thing uh in the pages of wolverine shortly after that <laughs> so yeah very very uh, a very iconic moment for wolverine oh yeah yeah that, that, that wolverine 90 issue i know exactly what we're talking yep, about exactly but this is but this is why we see here on this really cool double page uh splash that he's in restraints yes he's on he got like a muzzle and he's got these uh, mechanical claws over his claws so, which is weird because it's like why if, if you're gonna restrain him why are you giving him like deadly claws <laughs> that he can still use it's funny because these restraints look a lot more scary and daunting than they did when Joe Madrew in the last issue. So it's that kind of an odd continuity arts thing with the way the restraints look. But yeah, these ones, they're way, way more menacing. They got claws and he still looks like he has fangs in his mouth. So <laughs> we just we just mechanicalized them a little bit. Yeah, it's like Xavier designed these specifically to keep them restrained, but to keep them looking like supervillains? I don't understand. <laughs> In the previous issue, Joe Madju, when they were, he was wearing mittens, basically. Right, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't actually really understand Phalanx very much at all. I mean, it's obvious that these guys are a, a ripoff of Star Trek's Borg, right? Yeah, they're a hive mind uh, that, that uh, assimilate uh, other organisms. So they've assimilated Stephen Lang, who is the guy who tried to kill the X-Men with Sentinels. 
um, like way back in the sixties. And, but it, I just, I, he's Scott, Stephen Lang's never been a huge major player. So when there's the big reveal in this issue that Stephen Lang, like the, the phalanx for, you know, the, 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 the techno organic kind of face disappears revealing Stephen Lang's real face and Sean instantly recognizes it but it's like really this guy is the big bad and we don't even really like I don't care about this guy at all <laughs> no he's, he's a forgotten character I had to look him up because they were talking about how he created the Sentinels and I was like wait wasn't that Trask like right. I kind of like research it a little bit to see what they were talking about yeah so it's like I wasn't too thrilled the phalanx basically is yeah. kind of like they're the threat but they're not the actual purpose of this story so it's kind of like you can take them or leave them which is unfortunate I guess <laughs> yeah this is a much smaller segmented story like satellite and ancillary to the the actual phalanx covenant crossover yeah okay well let's keep on going over to uncanny x-men number 317 this one has skin on the front cover and I do want to point out this cover because of this drawing of Skin. Now, Skin is not Mr. Fantastic. He can't stretch his limbs. He just has an odd amount, an, an abundance of extra skin on his body. And he can control that skin. But this picture of Skin has like his whole arm is outstretched. So his whole hand is like down at his feet and his whole hand is big. That's not actually how Chris Bocello has designed this character to be, but this is Joe Mad's interpretation. So when we get into the issues, the actual Generation X issues that, that Bocello is drawing, we never see Skin stretching his arm like this where his hand is at the very end because his bones don't stretch. It's only right. his skin. Yeah, it's just like he's just wearing a really large hoodie all the time. It's just extra skin. Yeah. yeah. You can't stretch out any more of his body. So, so this, I always was bothered by... That picture of skin on the cover here because of that. <laughs> I'm bothered by the uh, the creepy leg socks he's got going on. That <laughs> but that's see that's that is a little bit more appropriate though. I like right. I like that. <laughs> Same with his elbow. The elbow band there's a big fold. It's like he's wearing like a really large shirt. Yeah, exactly. Uh, okay, so. This issue brings us to where our team of new mutants are being held captive. Uh, all of the most of the action centers around this team of mutants as they figure out how to escape the phalanx clutches, but it also shows our other team, which is now Banshee and Emma and Everett and Jubilee. Sabretooth is missing at this point uh, as they try to figure out where the kids are being held. Now, the team that's being held captive are two that we have already met, Monet and Paige, but now we're introduced to Angelo, who is Skin, and we're introduced to two other characters, Gregor and Clarice. And we don't know exactly what their powers are yet, except Clarice doesn't have pupils and her skin is kind of almost like a pinky purple. So she definitely, and she has like elf ears. So she looks like a mutant. Yeah, she's got a kind of elf looking eye. She's got uh, tattoos on her face. Yeah. So she kind of... So something's up. We don't know anything about her character. And then, and then skin, of course is looking a little weird. That first image, this splash page, again, this is not skin at all. He's he's like folded like a blanket. That's a very poor interpretation of skin. <laughs> but, you know, this is his first appearance, so they haven't ironed that all out yet. This issue was great for character development of these characters that we're meeting for the first time because all of these kids who are trapped in this, I don't know, this jail cell of sorts, they can only talk to each other. They can't do any action. So this is where we get to see their personalities 
This is where we get to see how they interact with others, how they don't w interact well with others, and uh, and a little bit about their skills. Paige already comes off as the know-it-all. Skin always comes off, already comes off as a cynic, and Clarice is just like really, really scared and timid. So uh, neat to see these characters coming into play. And we also see here uh, uh, Skin speaking Spanish. Yes, which is a a big thing about his character. He's uh, you know one of the early Hispanic characters. And uh, we get a lot of uh, kind of, you know, uh, curricularisms and a little kind of Spanish fun through him as well in this, uh, in this issue. Yeah, it's nice to see, actually, that this cast is fairly diverse. Uh, I mean, we have Monet, who is French, but her family is from like Algiers, I think. And uh, and then and then Everett is African American, and then we'll also meet uh, Jonathan, who is, later on in this book, who is English from from England. So we've got a good world world representation, I think, of characters in this book, which is kind of nice. That's uh, definitely in line with what Claremont was trying to do with the New Mutants way back in the eighties, or even with uh, when he took over, when Claremont took over and he introduced the new X Men. It was the same idea. Oh yeah, of course, diverse, yep. diverse group of characters. So right. it, it's still following that same that same beat and that same kind of X Men trope. Yeah, exactly. It's nice. It's nice to see. Man, I, I just love Joe Mad's art in this issue as well. He's just there's the one scene where he where Everett and Jubilee are talking in the rain. Mm -hmm. And just like he's captured this mood of the conversation so well in the way just the body language, but also the way the rain is hitting them and like Jubilee soaked hair. It looks so, so good. He's really, really great at capturing those details that that really evoke what's going on in the page. Yeah, definitely fantastic work from him. Again, this is him at an early, early stage. And he, he's already got the talent. You can see where it's coming from. Yeah, he's a good storyteller. And he only, man, once he gets to Age of Apocalypse, he just kind of, it's all of a sudden next level with those issues. That's, that's exactly what I was going to say. He leveled up with that with that series. Who's your favorite character so far out of the ones we've met? Uh, my favorite one out of the group from this point would have to be, uh, would be a skin. Yeah. I, I identified a lot with Skin with him being the Hispanic character and him kind of being the cynic uh, and, th and things like that. But I think he starts off that way, but he also gets a, a pretty good character arc through it as well. Yeah, he really does. Yeah. Yeah. And you can see it from he, he that extra skin. He's not a mutant. He's not one of these good looking mutants. He's just good looking people with a with a fun power. His power is a disfigurement to him. So you, he, he's that kind of character. So you get to get a lot of that from him as well. We had some good, a good defining moment here from Monet as well, because she speaks for the first time uh, because she's been taking apart this weird costume that the techno organic virus or the, the phalanx has given her, given all of them. She's taken it apart and recreated it as a weapon. And we find out that Gregor is the mole, which was a, a cool little twist. Uh, he was phalanx himself. That actually uh, got me, Curtis. Yeah, totally. It's been a long time since I read this series and I was reading this. I was like, who's this Gregor guy? I don't remember him. <laughs> like, I'm like, where is, where is he coming from? I don't remember this character in Generation X whatsoever. I was like, does he die? Like, well, like what happens? Exactly. And then this is reveal. And I was like, ah, they got me. I was, I totally bought into it. Okay, we'll keep going to X-Men number 37, the last part of the Phalanx Covenant. Uh, the, the team, the team of captive mutants escapes. We find out that they're on a boat in the middle of the harbor of some sort uh, in New York, and uh, they are surrounded by Phalanx, and Sabretooth has actually tracked them down and is 
is helping them. He escaped a few issues later, but he's actually still on their side, which is kind of nice. Uh, and this is where the whole team comes together. Banshee and Everett, they managed to, to show up as well. Um, and Jubilee. And is Emma there too? I can't remember. But anyway, through the yeah. course of this, there's two big reveals here. One of the big reveals is Paige's power, which we didn't know anything about in these first three issues. We find out that she has the ability to shed her skin and underneath is whatever kind of material or or um, uh, like a compound that, that she wants it to be. So in this case, underneath her skin is a metal skin that will be impervious to uh, the phalanx. So that was a cool reveal. Um, Super gross power. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, you can see like her hair is just on the ground below her. <laughs> it's just like, oh man, that is <laughs> yeah. kind of gross. And then the second big reveal is Blink's power because she kind of used it once a little bit in the first power. Well, I called her Blink. They don't really call her Blink in this. For those of you who don't know anything about this character, she, she goes on to be quite famous, but she actually dies in this issue. Spoiler alert. Uh, saving all of the team from the phalanx. She blinks them out of existence, but in the process blinks herself out of existence. So it's a pretty powerful, a pretty powerful ability. But um, she was a character that was created specifically to die in this story. She, like Scott, didn't have any plans to bring her on, into the actual book. He just needed someone to help save the day and bring the team closer together. They needed that Uncle Ben character that gave them purpose. Here's Scott Lobdell talking about Blink's death. Well, I mean, I always liked her. The thing is, is that what happened was that. The easiest way to make a character popular is to kill them off, and then everybody wants them. Yeah. So my feeling was, okay, I knew when she was invented that she was going to die. Like, she was invented essentially to die. Okay. So that was her reason for being. And then when, for the months after that, leading into Generation X, you know, all the fan mail came in. They're like, bring back Blink. And so then when we started to do a hatred of pop-ups, I go, oh my God, it's going to be four issues and then it's going to end, which means she's going to die. Again. So I'll come back, <laughs> but only to kill her again. Like, that'll be so yeah. funny to me. Like, okay, like, we'll give you, we'll, you say you want her, here she is. Oh, it's gone again. Yeah, right. So, and I think it was quite effective. The unfortunate part is that her look is so good, like the way she's designed, that people wanted to see her back. No one cared that Gregor died. <laughs> 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 well, Gregor was was wasn't even a real character. Right, exactly. He was a, he was a phalanx. Yeah, but yeah. Um, <laughs> but Blink became huge. Like she doesn't do a lot in here. No, you know, she, you know, most of the time she she uh, she's very scared. She's very traumatized by the events. A lot of times she is just kind of locked away, crying or and and, and pontificating that they're all going to die and bad things are going to happen. So she's not really in it. But when you see her, she does have that really cool look. You're right. And they bring her back for Age of Apocalypse and they love her so much that she just keeps popping in and out of continuity still. Yeah. Yeah. She's been even given her own miniseries and she's been a feature character yeah. on other in other books since then. It's like ah, she's got action figures. She was in the movies. Her. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I I they haven't brought her back proper yet, right? Did she, has she shown up on Krakoa in the, the in Hickman's X Men? Not that I'm aware of. Uh, not that I've been reading it. Also, so I'm gonna be surprised if she did show up, but I don't think so. I think that she's a character. If she did return would be a, a, a big huge, deal. huge thing. Yeah, it'd be a very very old deal. Seems like someone who should return if they're bringing back all dead mutants. Like if they're all coming back, she should have returned too. But oh well. 
that's kind of our phalanx story. What are your general impressions of these four issues, Gabe? You know what? I was surprised because of this being kind of an ancillary satellite story in the middle of a larger phalanx like crossover. And now it's two random issues from one series, two random issues from another series, that it was a co- cohesive, well-done story. Yeah. I mean, you get the beginning, the middle, you get the end. It's all coherent. It doesn't get bogged down or taken away by the main storyline or, or anything like that that is very uh, similar to how crossovers are these days. But so these four issues, you, you got introduced to the character, you, you got to know them, you got to like some of them, you got, you know, by the, this point, like you said, you had a favorite and you had somebody you probably didn't like. And all of that you get in this four issue mini, uh, this four issue storyline with, you know, an ancillary phalanx villain as well. So I liked yeah. it. It had a lot going for it. I was surprised that we got a good story out of four random issues, a part of a crossover event. And I tell you, it's this is kind of like a, a great marketing ploy as well, because, you know, X-Men was so huge and people were buying it. And like, why not introduce all of the new characters in that book in order to get them to jump on board with the new title that you're about to launch? So it's like they, they did the right thing there, I think. Also, yep. it's just interesting that uh, you take four issues of X-Men and none of the main characters are in there. Not a single one. Wolverine isn't seen at all in these four issues. Um, and we only get brief glimpses of Scott and Jean. And then all of the other people are imposters. So it's like we got a whole X-Men storyline of four issues of X-Men that don't feature X-Men. Yeah. This is basically Generation X Zero. Yes, it is. A- an extra large issue, issue zero. Yeah. yeah. It, it is a good origin story. It, it doesn't feel forced that they are all coming together in the end. In fact, once they, the only reason that they're building a new school is because all of a sudden they've saved all of these mutants. They weren't planning on opening up a new school like Xavier did with new mutants. It just kind of happened. So there's one other uncanny X-Men issue in this book, and it's number 318. And it acts as a transition between the Phalanx Covenant and Generation X number one. This is where Jubilee says goodbye to being an X-Men, which is a really big deal because it feels like a demotion, right? Yeah, it's, it's like she's going from the big leagues back down to like, you know, the minor leagues or something like that. It does feel yeah. like a demotion. And she bypassed New Mutants altogether. Like she was never on that team, even though it was in existence when she joined the X-Men. But she was just always part of the X-Men. But what I like about this issue is that she says goodbye to to everybody, She uh, all of the, the people she needs to say goodbye to. And through that, we learn that this is her decision. This is something that she wants to do. She's not being forced by Xavier. He's not saying, hey, I've got a, a new group. Of, a new, I'm forming a new school with all these teenagers. And since you're a teenager, you should be here too. Um, and I think that was made clear through the phalanx issues as well, that she is very underclassed in her power set. She never has really put the time and effort to fully realize her powers. She just she says that she just kind of sparkles. And so she wants that opportunity to grow and develop and, and really hone her skills. And that's why she's going to Generation X. Yeah. And it, it's also gives her a chance to be like, it's like her being a, uh, like going into like the senior class. Like it's her senior year of high school and she gets to kind of oversee some of the younger kids. So she gets to come in as like a, 
a veteran, but also be a, a student as well. So yeah. it's really good to see how she kind of progresses through all of that too. That's one of the things that gets lost after she joins, after the original creative team leaves, because once Larry Hama takes over the book, he ages Jubilee way down to like a young 13-year-old and she becomes one of the youngest members of Generation X and acts like one of the youngest members. And it totally takes away all of that sense of I've got experience. Let me teach you some things kind of relationship that she has here. Yeah. But in this issue, we also get some good character beats for Skin because Skin doesn't want to have anything to do with the school. So he's actually leaving. And the person who manages to convince him to come back is Beast. And I love this interaction between the two of them because now we have the two characters like Beast is the one who can relate to Skin the most because he can't go out in public without people staring at him. So what better person to talk to Skin than this guy? Yeah, and, and Skin is just being your your typical teenage boy at this point. I mean, he's even trying to like talk to Beast like, hey, you don't you don't understand where I'm coming from. And we're like, what are you talking about, Skin? <laughs> yeah. Yes, Beast knows exactly where you're coming from. This issue, there's no action at all because we had the whole Phalanx storyline, it was like wall-to-wall action. This one has nothing. It's all dialogue. And so every single page is actually really important character development. I love how Scott Liddell has positioned this issue here, not to just be a transition for Generation X, but to further along some of these other characters. We have a great scene with White Queen, with Emma, where, where she is frustrated with the guys who are putting up this sign and she just wants to take over their minds and make them do it the way she wants to do it. But she's holding herself back. She says, I'll have to be, and she stutters, patient. I despise being patient. She says, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and like, that's, that's where she's at right now. She realizes that she needs to be a better person and she's trying. And I think that's really cool. Right. Where she's not using her powers all the time to get her way or for manipulation purposes like this. Yeah. And I think part of the reason why she's being like this is she sees the damage that that has done to Bobby because he she literally took over him for a while. And so they have an interaction here as well, um, which is a great character beat for, for Bobby moving forward. He goes through a, a pretty big arc um, over the next couple of years in the X-Men title. Yeah, this is my favorite, my favorite Iceman stuff is when he is able to tap into his powers as strongly as he can. Just like, that's the same with the Generation X stuff with Jubilee, where she's trying to develop her powers. We're also now seeing Iceman and his potential to grow his powers. Yes. This art in this issue is uh, Roger Cruz. And it's not my favorite. He gets a little bit more cheesecake than I like. Not to say that like Joe Mad isn't cheesecake, but <laughs> it's, a, it's a different way. Um, and he, ta- he takes over Generation X uh, for a couple of issues in this book as well. And they're not my favorite, but he's, he's fine, though, as a 90s artist. He's interesting because he becomes a Joe Mad uh, kind of ape and yeah. did a lot of swiping. And you, there's even issues of X-Men where Joe Mad kind of makes fun of Roger Cruz for swiping his artwork <laughs> all the time. That's so funny. Yeah. Okay, do you have anything more you want to say about these issues or should we move on to Generation X number one? No, let's jump right on in to uh, the main storyline here. Let's play a clip of Scott Lobdell talking about Chris Batchelow. Bob and I have been going back and forth about, not back and forth, we were kept saying, well, what about, I don't know. And then Chris was working over at DC and Bobby Chase brought him over to do Ghost Rider 2099 and then we had to do uh, X-Men Unlimited number one and Chris 
was around to draw it. And so four pages in, I went into Bob's office and I go, I figured it out. I figured out who should do Generation X. He goes, oh, I already did. I already figured out uh, uh, Chris Pichella. I go, that's what I was going to say. So <laughs> nice. it was just perfect yeah. that he, uh, and it was funny because I called Chris that day and I said, hey, um, I'm Scott Lovedahl and I want you to write, uh, I want you to work on uh, Generation X and it's a new book and it's going to be da, 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 da. And he goes, yeah, I don't, um, I don't draw like uh, Jim Lee, so you don't want me. And mm-hmm. I said, if I wanted Jim Lee, I would have called up Jim Lee and begged Jim Lee to do the book. I said, but I want you, and I want you to do what you do. And he's like, yeah, but you don't understand. He goes, I was, you know, when I was doing death, there's a scene where two people were sitting on a, a, a stoop together, and so I did two pages of just their knees. You know, like mm-hmm. when one was talking, the other was turning away, and da, yeah. da. and and he said, you know, and they made me redo it, and you know, but that's where my head is at. And I said, well, Chris, I'll make your deal. Uh, if you send me two pages of knees, then I'll draw two pages of knees. And so this went back and forth, and he said no. And then about three months later, because we weren't in, it wasn't on the schedule yet. So about three months later, he called, and apparently uh, he was telling somebody about how he turned it down. And his wife was like, are you out of your mind? <laughs> Call them right now and beg for that job. <laughs> so wow. he called me. He's like, is that still open? And they're like, sure. Okay, Generation X number one. This is a double size issue. Uh, we, this, is, this is the beginning of the Xavier Institute for higher learning. The, our, all of our students are now in the school. They're kind of getting into their, into their routine. They're figuring out how to live with each other. And the main point of this issue is that they have to go pick up a new student from the airport. But when they do that, they're ambushed by a new villain by the name of M-Plate. This, I cannot tell you, Gabe, how many times I've read this issue. Like so many times, over and over again. Uh, because it from start to finish, it's just fantastic. Everything about it, the 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 artwork is just unbelievable. The storytelling, the characters, uh, I just uh, I eat it all. I eat it up over and over again. Yeah, no, I I, I agree. It, it's a fun read of an issue. Uh, somebody uh, mentioned earlier who was in the comments. This this uh, jubilee image with her on the park bench. Yeah is is gorgeous it, it it there's something about it every time you flip through this book you have to stop on this page for some reason this really draws your attention and that just is uh chris Pahalo's vertical style art uh really coming to play and giving this book its identity as being kind of like the underground what i love about this it, this page right here is it shows off his style so well he is great at realism the realism in the hair how he, she has strands of hair that are just kind of all over the place um i love her wrist of the hand that's pointing to the watch because it's not super skinny like it's a more realistic rounded looking hand right <laughs> right and then you contrast that with the trees in the background which are a little bit more cartoony if you look at that orange tree that's in the background of this picture yep. and just the leaves it's just like little little swishy lines and you see that through this whole two-page spread yeah where the the, the foreground will have more details and then he just leaves the bushes alone he just kind of just just jots them in real quick. Yeah, and it's because he he has that really really good uh, line between realism and surrealism, 
and he yeah. can blend the surrealism into the background so that the background is not overwhelming uh and it really brings the foreground to 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 the spotlight like this is what we should be looking at now i love this yeah. two-page spread also because it's not actually a two-page spread it's two separate pages he just chose to make one of the pages bleed over the gutter into the next onto the page on the left <laughs> oh so there you go. Yeah, it's it's great. I did a YouTube video not too long ago called Curtis Explains Why Generation X is a piece is a comic masterpiece or something like that. And I mm -hmm. go through every single one of these pages and, and tell you why each one of these pages is so great from an art standpoint. So <laughs> if you're interested in, I go into way more detail. The whole video is like an hour and a half, I think. <laughs> it's like oh, great. that's awesome. We are shown a little bit more of of uh, Paige's powers in this issue. In At the beginning here, she pulls off her skin because she's sweaty and she reveals a new clean version of herself underneath. I think that's a very cool way to show how she's probably used her powers up until this point. She's never had to take a shower. And we also get uh, through through up into this part in the issue more of like her her character and who she wants to be. Yes, and kind of like her place on the team that she's trying to obtain. So you get a lot more, and that's just really quick. And I just heard jogging, and we get like this whole idea of what her her kind of goals are that she's setting for herself. She wants to be the leader of the team. Yeah, and this really sets it up well because there is a. There is this power play dynamic between Paige and Jubilee and Monet because Paige is the one who is always trying to learn and be better. Jubilee is the one that thinks she's so great because she's got X-Men experience. And then we have Monet who just thinks she's great because she actually is a genius and she has the ego to go along with it. And all of them feel like they are kind of better than each other. And it sets up some really interesting dynamics between the three of them in future issues. I really fall in love with Monet through this. I love that character so much at this point. Yeah, she's very, very cool. Uh, and still a mystery. Um, in the Phalanx Covenant, we didn't even talk about this. Like, We didn't know what her powers were because she was silent and didn't talk. And then in the, in the span of two pages, we find out that she is a genius because she can create this gun out of nothing. And she's super strong because she punches a hole in the wall. We knew nothing about her before. And then all of a sudden we're, we're met with that. And now we see she can also fly. Like, what the heck? <laughs> it's like, this is a big surprise. And that she is uh, filthy rich as well. Right. Yeah. We get kind of a hint of that earlier because she's like in the very first page of this book, she's being sent to a boarding school or something. And she has a limo driver and a butler or whatever so we get a little hint of that but yeah very very rich very very spoiled and then so this issue a lot of it is taken up of learning these characters each one of them has a scene where they get to display their powers because we need to know what their powers are if we're going to move forward in this book so there is a scene where angelo and everett are fighting in what they call the danger grotto it's their version of the danger room <laughs> it's like a biodome and uh, we get to see their powers. We get to see Sink sinking his powers to skin. And so that there's a that great page where they're flying through the window and they've got like their skin fingers all tangled up around each other. <laughs> yeah, they're all wrapped up. Yeah. And yeah, we get a first hint of Banshee and Emma together as co-headmasters. And right off the bat, we have a, an amazing dynamic between the two of them where the Banshee doesn't quite trust Emma a little bit and they have this weird tension and it definitely turns into sexual tension in no time but it's like <laughs> this great 
really, really great dynamic between the two of them. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of power struggles in this book. Yes. On this team. And it's really great because we saw that's also something that's very X-Men. In Giant Size X-Men, all of those characters didn't know how to interact with with each other at the beginning there too. Um, and even the original X-Men, it's like, you know, there there's a point where Warren thought that he should be the team leader when they were all teenagers and Scott's like, I'm the team leader. So I think that's just kind of a natural thing with powerful mutants, I guess. So it seems like. Tell me what you think about M-Plate. What are your thoughts on him? Oh, he is a he is a creepy, creepy character. We get a, a first little glimpse here of him, where he kind of reminds me of the villain from the the Mad Max movie, where he has ah. that big breather mask on, yes, and he has those like really kind of creepy, creepy eyes. But I love this this page. Like this car is like the coolest looking car that you've seen in an X Men comic ever. Absolutely, at this point. it's very cool. And it's it just yeah. And again, it's Chris having this really detailed kind of foreground on, on this 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 car is beautiful. And then this kind of like cartoony cloud and this little cute airplane kind of like speeding away. But even still, like if you look at the grill of this car, yeah, he doesn't use a ruler for any of those lines. Mm-mm. He's just kind of drawn them in. That's the that part right there is some of the cartoony underground nature of his style as well because it's it's not as crisp and defined as like the windshield he just kind of drew those lines on there <laughs> so right. it's I, I love just the i love his style i love his style so much it's great yeah it's so much fun and plate is a cool villain and i think one of the coolest things about his character is that Pacello doesn't really fully draw him like we don't ever really get to see any great shots full body shots of M plate which keeps him kind of being a mystery really great because he lives yeah he kind of lives in between uh like frequencies or, 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 some, or something like that uh, we'll, we'll get to but yeah we never really get like a full shot of him there's a really cool clip here of mark buckingham talking about how he did this really cool um, effect that we see on m plate right here in the first issue of generation x the scene in the airport when m plate is sort of he's like between dimensions or he's like a little out of phase or such there are some incredible like inking effects to make him look just sort of a, a little bit smeared what did you do in order to make that look the way it did? Because it's it's a really, really neat effect. There, there was uh, a lot of things that Chris used to do back then, which I also kind of picked up on and played with, with my own work, which is to do with effectively um, making, you know, doing a, making a drawing, uh, making a photostat of it, but actually manipulating the image as it's being scanned. So oh, okay. You sort of stretch and warp the form, and uh, it's incredibly effective. And and you know, and again, if you're working with a good colorist, they can kind of latch onto that and then take it, you know, to to further uh, lengths, so that you end up with something that really feels quite strange and otherworldly. But yeah, that was that was the sort of thing that Chris played with a lot in that period of his career. Um, again, you see, that was one of the reasons why I like working with him so much because he was, he was trying to do things that I, I thought, Oh yes, I want to learn how these, these techniques are created. I want to sort of pick up this and add this to my own skill set. So it was a wonderful opportunity to learn as well as working with someone that I greatly admired. 
Um, yeah, like you said, between frequencies. So he's able to walk through the airport and people can't see him, but he can see the the mutant energy auras, like the auras that uh, that mutants give off. And I mm-hmm. guess yep. he's kind of like a vampire where he sucks the energy out of them. And it, that's what, what uh, fuels him or keeps him going. Yeah, and that's a really cool image too. Just just the, just the whole design of this book is really cool where you get the auras kind of digitally put in here and then all the lettering. This is one of the early days of uh, digital lettering. So we kind of kind of get that here too. So we get a really good just layout of this entire issue. That's a really good point actually because this was an experimental book in that sense. Here's a clip of letterer Richard Starkings talking about digital lettering. And following that is a clip from Steve Bucciolato talking about digital coloring. It's much more restrictive these days. We get told what fonts to use. We, we don't have the kind of, I, I would say gener- Generation X, especially the first 20, 30 issues, we had crazy amounts of freedom and creative involvement. And um, once other people started working digitally and then once you got, art directors involved who wanted more control and being able to buy fonts gives the illusion of control to art directors. And the thing was, as an art director myself in the Comic Craft Studio, I encouraged experimentation. I encouraged new things. But, you know, if you're the art director at Marvel or DC, you, you want things to be easier. You don't, Being experimental makes things more difficult. Right. So it's very rare that you get a situation where you're encouraged to be um, experimental. And we were able to do that because there was a lot of ignorance of computers, software, fonts. So we were sort of making up the rules as we went along. And, you know, Marvel and DC worked the way that we choose to work. We set the template for all digital letters for the last 30 years yeah you know because because of our choices you know so um and you know a lot of people these days buy our fonts at comicbookfonts.com we've got over 300 font families and you know if you chose to you could buy all the fonts that you've seen in generation x and try your hand at it but the difference is how creative are you going to be when you're following in our footsteps what i liked about generation x we were in at number one yep and we could make new rules, whereas previously we'd been lettering, we'd picked up books like Spider-Man, uh, Superboy we were working on, books that already had a, a look. Generation X was an area where we could choose how it looked. I was always open to other people's creativity. And Generation X is a great example of, I loved working with on Chris Picello's work, John Rochelle was, had been working for me about two years, three years at this point, and I was pushing him and you know trying to inspire him to do different style title pages. I came up with the little sort of button for, for footnotes and yep. sort of and, and I was trying to and, and the, the, there was a little sort of um, generation X created by and I, and I imitated the Intel inside little circle. <laughs> yeah, yep. Because I wanted it, I wanted to say this is a digital book. This is a digital experience. Because Generation X was about young people, and you know I was a lot younger at the time. But you know that's the thing is to say what what is what is significant about this book? It's about young people. What are young people doing right now? They're pressing buttons on computers. 
They are familiar with the Intel Inside logo. They are familiar with the idea that, that this is not a comic book from 1965. You know, and then even in the beginning of digital coloring, they still insisted we do color guides and who would be they'd be sent to a team of digital artists who would try to interpret what I did in my color guides. And so there's always this disconnect. Right. Yeah. And it really this is the part where it's kind of interesting when you get into the, the period of Generation X is that. You know, I started this, this company called Electric Crayon with another old Marvel friend of mine. And we were among the innovators who were doing digital coloring at the time. Um, but it was, you know, and our basic, basically our big sell was we were taking these desktop publishing tools, which were had become available and becoming popular, which uh, smaller companies like Image Comics had just been developed. And because they were small, they immediately adopted those desktop publishing tools. Whereas Marvel and DC, they were like these slow dinosaurs who refused to change, right? <laughs> yeah. And then they tried all sorts of things to get to that point. Like they bought Malibu Comics because they had an internal coloring department, you know? Yeah. And so that's like that was an interim step where like I'd still be do- painting color guides and then they would give them to their Malibu guys to turn into digital into the digital artwork that gets printed. And for a long time, it's like they didn't trust, like Marvel in particular, it's like they didn't trust their colorists to actually work on the what was going to be printed. It, it was weird. So for a long time, even when I was doing color, digital color separations myself, they would still have me do color guides first. And, wow. and, and often, would, or they would have me do them and then give them to a different separator to do the separations. So like, my early X-Men stuff, um, I was doing uh, the color guides, but then another company like Digital Chameleon might do the separation, even though I had my own coloring company. It made it was weird. It's like they didn't want to put all their eggs in one basket or something. And Generation X was the first one where Marvel at least said, okay, we're going to let you do everything. Wow. You know? And, yeah. you know, and because I was in the office with Richard, it's like, you're going to not just, ha- we're going to handle all the digital production and then from to take the inks and take it all the way to printing basically. So that was, that was the big change. And it took a long time to convince them to let us do that. Wow. Uh, I guess in the beginning, um, yeah, I, I was already working on the X-Men books, uh, on uh, Uncanny X-Men and Wolverine at the time. I don't remember if I was doing both or one or the other when Generation X was uh, first being formed. But um, I think at, at the time, I was definitely at least one of uh, the editor, uh, Bob Harris's uh, go-to guys. So he brought me in, in right in the beginning. Um, they, they wanted me on that. And uh, I know Scott Labdell was a writer. He was uh, really interested in in the digital lettering and in the whole idea of bringing us all together as a team. And so I'm, I, you know, we all had an, we already had this relationship with Bob Harris um, as editor. But uh, so I'm not sure how much pushing Scott had to do, or if it just seemed natural at that point. You know, I was brought on early so that I could work on that. Um, that little preview book that you mentioned, but also, um, you know, to do like uh, color character designs and stuff too ahead of time. Okay, so you worked yeah. with Chris to design these characters? Uh, a little bit, you know. I mean, Chris would, uh, you know, he, he he pretty much knew knew what he wanted. I think for for those for the characters. I think um, when it came to the main costumes, uh, you know, I remember doing like a couple different versions. You know, where they might be, where you know they're red versus you know blue. But there, 
they were pretty much set, I believe, from the beginning. Okay. It was special in that we knew it was an opportunity and said that we didn't want to mess up. And we and was it also, you know, as I'd mentioned before, up until then, uh, Marvel was keeping the digital separations and the a distance between that and the coloring by, by still insisting on colors doing color guides instead of doing the actual digital work. So... This would this would be a little different because even though they asked me to do color guides, it was more of like they just wanted to see it ahead of time. And then me and my team would take the color guides and actually do the separations and, and see it through to the printing. So this was a, a, our opportunity to show, a well, look, you know, we, we should have been doing this all along, you know. Mm. I think basically they they wanted to look good. They wanted to look different. And, you know, and the bottom line was they really wanted to compete with the image comics. You know, the image comics, they were able to have a certain level of quality because they had artists, you know, digital artists working on what was going to be printed, you know, and they had um, they worked in a small studio where they they were the artists and the uh you know, the, the people who drew the line arts and the colors could work together and, and create a real look for those things and more detail. This whole uh, situation where someone else had to interpret what I meant in my color guides, you know, obviously there's always going to be uh, room for the, uh, the dig- digital artist or the color separator to just do something completely different than what I intended. Right. And, that, and that could just, not just in terms of the detail, but in terms of like, say the saturation of a color, you know, so something that was meant to be subtle might end up being too bright or vice versa, you know, so there's just a lot of room for interpretation. And so the big deal here was that I didn't have to do that anymore. It's like I, even if I didn't work on every page myself, as far as the digital separations went, I was looking over the shoulder of the people who did so, and I can decide as well. Um, like for example, there was one of my uh, team who was especially gifted at like um, doing beautiful skies and clouds and things like that. So if there was a page that really could use that treatment, I would say here, you know, give that page to her. Oh, okay. And for that matter too. Um, because I was actually not just overseeing, I was actually doing the separations myself uh, whenever I could. I could cherry pick the pages that I really didn't want to trust anyone else with to, to do myself. Oh, okay. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What, what's an example of one of those pages that you really, that you wanted to do yourself? Do you, can you recall from those early Gen X days? <clears throat> sure. I mean, some of them, I mean, I, like an easy one even would be like uh, page one of generation X number one. Uh, um, yeah. Just uh, besides the, f- I mean, it's uh it's like a beautiful autumn scene, which I, I like coloring that kind of stuff. Uh, in general, but also, frankly, my ego says that it's, you know, it's the first page or if there's a double page spread or some really exciting page that I feel is going to, you know, be, get the most, you know, notice, then I want to have my stamp on that uh, more than the others. You know, then it's like a talking head scene, which I could feel more comfortable passing on to one of my team. Yeah, I just love all the all the, the lettering. I mean, you know, Implay gets his own kind of word bubbles. Yep. Uh, Jonathan that we run into, Chamber who is my absolute favorite Gen X character. I yeah. love, love, love Chamber. Uh, he gets his own kind of word bubbles. It, it's really just, you know, it's all around just a really fun looking book. Yeah, and they do a lot of stuff to to introduce new, like different kind of concepts of communication as well. So 
um, let me see if I can find an example here. There's a there is a scene where Jubilee is frustrated, and all you get in the speech bubble is like a a scribble. It's not a word. It's not letters. It just looks like a scribble because that yep. shows the frustration. And speaking of word balloons, here's a clip from Richard Starkings talking about uh, all of the different word balloons he was able to do digitally. You know, I've got to give some credit to Scott Lobdell, who, you know, he sort of responded very well to the idea that we were going to work digitally. And I think you're responding to the fact that he, he basically, he's just telepathic the whole time, right? Right. Yeah. So there was this old style of telepathic balloons that had little whiskers on them. And I always questioned old standards because what used to happen was if you were whispering, you had a broken line around your balloon. If you were telepathic, you had little whiskers on it. Yeah. They were habits, really. They were shortcuts. They were easy to do for, for a pen letterer. But a digital letterer can produce one balloon and then duplicate it time and time and time again without much effort. Right. So I wanted something different for telepathic. So we had these sort of little, um, I call it a little heartbeat motif on the corner of each balloon. Okay. And that became our standard for telepathic balloons. You know, we, we were able to do a lot of new things in Generation X and a lot of other books simply because it's like, okay, when people are whispering, let's have grayed out balloons because, you know, if it's hard to read, then it's hard to hear. <laughs> right. Yeah, that makes you sense. Yep. So I try to apply a bit of logic and the same logic that I applied to um, the, uh, the footnote caption. Okay. Or the regular captions, which had the font based on the logo. Right. And I, I, I did little things which letterers have been doing for years and years. Artie Simic in the 60s was doing drop caps. I used drop caps in Generation X. But in a way, Generation X, that first couple of years, was our Bible of this is how we want to do comics. And because it was people were talking about it, because people sort of saw that I wasn't just doing what everybody done for 30, 40 years, other writers would say, how do I get you on my book? Nice. And we, would, we were doing cover lettering. We were doing logo design. We were doing elaborate title pages. And pretty soon, within that next three, four-year period, we were doing all the X-Men books, as I said, because Generation X was like our flagship book. At the airport, uh, we have this page where Husk has been uh, slashed by Emplate and Jubilee has to come and rip her skin off to reveal a, a new, um, you know, unhurt version underneath. This is another yeah. instance of a two-page spread that is really two pages. But Chris Bocello has decided to put the, the page that would normally be on the left, he instead has it on the top. And he has the page that would go on the right. He has that on the bottom over going over the two pages. So it's another I like I love it when he does that because it's like, yeah, it's just two pages, but he does it in an unconventional way. And he fooled me. I totally would never believe this is a double page spread. I gutter lost kind of ate it up a little bit, but yeah, that's cool. Uh, ah, yeah. yeah. And then what a good, what a really cool example of, uh, of Husk's powers again, where, you know, she's, we're learning all about her still. We're learning about her powers and being able to rip her skin off, you know, is able to kind of save her from lacerations too. Totally. And man, what a great introduction to Chamber as well, because he's all covered up. He's another character that, uh, because of his design, Chris Bocello kind of hides the way he looks throughout the, the little scenes that we get leading up to this point. 
And then we get this big reveal of, oh man, actually he doesn't have half of his face or his chest because he's got this explosion that kind of comes out of him. It's such a, a bizarre and interesting design, character design. Here's a clip of Scott Lobdell talking about Chambers' really awesome design. And so that was another two months before San Diego, and Chris was like, all right, if we're going to do, because he, 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 had to, he had to finish up whatever his project was. And he said, um, all right, well, send me who the characters are so I can get started so that we meet in San Diego. And I said, yeah, I don't really, that's not, I, I said, I don't want to do that. I said, I'd rather we meet and come up with the characters. I said, I don't, you know, you're not like the artist, you're the co-creator, and I want to, you know, see what we want to do. And so we met in San Diego. It was me and Bob and his wife and Chris. And I said, you know, the only character I know for sure I want is a character called Chamber. And the idea is, is that, like, he, the very first time he used his power, he blew out his whole chest cavity and his jaw. So there's just this energy pouring out of him. And he goes, uh, yeah, that's really cool, but uh, that would be impossible to draw. <laughs> yeah. And I said, you know, it would be impossible for most people, Chris, but you, I know, can do it. And so... Uh, he had a sketchbook, and I thought it was a napkin, but he reminded me recently that it was a sketchbook that he had. And he goes, well, just tell me what you through this sketch. And then uh, maybe like three or four weeks later, he, he showed me uh, Chamber for the first time. And the very first time I saw it, it was like, okay, that's, you know, it's perfect. And, and again, it's another character who is disfigured by his powers. He's not one of those lucky, good-looking mutants that has cool powers. His power... I remember this. I don't remember which uh, comic book card series this was, but I'm sure you, I know you collected a lot of comic book cards. Yeah. I'm sure if anybody's listening to this Generation X episode, collect a lot of comic book cards. I remember the one for Chamber and it, how it tells you how the first time he used his powers, yep, it blew off his lower half of his face, his neck, and the upper part of his chest. And he just has this like I forget what they refer to it as, but it's almost like a like a like a star in in his in his face. Yeah. That's a good it's way to so put it. Cool. Yeah, it, and it just emits that that energy, and he can contain it. He like he can wrap it up so that it can't be seen. But he has to talk because he literally doesn't have a mouth. He has to talk through uh, through tele telecommunication, uh, like the like Emma Frost can. So that's kind of a cool little little aspect as well. Yeah, and he's what, are great. Just a, what about yeah? Just so many fun characters that they made for this series. So many of them, and I love that he's just the brooding, angsty character in a different way than Angelo is, because Angelo is cynical, and Angelo is—he's also moody, but more of a um, self-loathing character. Well, Chamber can be totally self-loathing as well, <laughs> but in a different yeah, in a different way. So we get—it's um, not just a repeat character, is what I'm saying. Yeah, mm -hmm. he has a different—he has a different way of expressing himself. And he's also British. Yes. <laughs> so he has, you know, he has that going for him. In fact, that, you know, it's, it's one of those international characters. Uh, and he also has that kind of British snark. And uh, the accent is, uh, is is written into his speech, too. So it's really cool. And he just wrapped up. He's wrapped up like a like a punk rock kid almost. He got this leather jacket and he got yep. these, these body wraps that wraps all the way up to, you know, up to his nose pretty much. And just when he just stands there with the flames going out everywhere, Bahalo just really just does all these really little doodly things in the background and really kind of like 
breaks up the panels because of his powers. It's, it's really good. He really makes a page come to life and he shows up. It's an interesting point about his character design because this is, is this is 1994. And so we are in the grunge era. We are mm-hmm. in the era of, um, I mean, it's, you know, Brit punk rock has kind of been going on for a long time by this point, but it's still quite a big popular thing. And uh, and I think Jonathan really, um, he really defines the era in which this book is being made. And he's, he just has that Neil Gaiman kind of character look to him. And Bahala did a couple issues of Sandman. So he kind of has that really cool Sandman-esque kind of uh, character design to him every time he draws him also. Yeah. So the big reveal at the end of this issue is that Gateway has brought them a visitor. Uh, it seems to be a character who has sharp claws and is wrapped up. And we're going to find a little bit more about her in the next issue. But yeah, before- Gateway, just, yeah. Gateway just dumps her on the, on the, on the front yard. <laughs> yeah. Like, thanks a lot. Just out of nowhere. Uh, before we go on, there are some bonus pages that were at the back of issue number one, where we get to find see, we get to see some of the early character designs of the characters and learn a little bit more about them through some dialogue. This is totally a Vertigo design. These pages right here with the backgrounds <laughs> and stuff, like straight well, out of a Vertigo book of the 90s right it's not just your typical sketchbook extra pages you get in the back of a comic like it's designed like there is it almost looks like you've ever been to like a punk rock concert like they're flyers it has that yeah. where it's like a bunch of just kind of random stuff kind of pieced and torn together and, and and then taped up and now we put the art on top of it so it's just <laughs> really cool looking designs we even get a glimpse of a character that we haven't been introduced yet to in these, in these pages too. that's right yeah that is weird that we get that we get that that glimpse of Mondo, whom uh, Mondo is a character who is in the early promo art and in the early promo releases, but he doesn't come into play for quite a while after this the series actually starts. And there's a different version of him in Age of Apocalypse that we see even before we really get to see Mondo in the series. That's right. Yeah. It, it, it's such a strange dynamic on how that worked, just the timing of it and everything. Totally. Okay, Generation X number two. This issue is called... Oh, I didn't say that the title of the last issue was called Third Genesis, which is a play on the title of Giant Size X-Men number two, which is called Second Genesis. So this is like, again, bringing in the illusion of the next the next group of mutants. Even though new mutants came between those two, <laughs> this one's Third Genesis. Yeah. So this one is called Searching. And if you look at the title, the Searching title is made out of Scrabble letters. And I love the little Scrabble theme that plays out through this issue to uh, to bring some character development between uh, Skin and Husk. Um, really, really nice. I've actually got a clip of Richard Starkings talking about these Scrabble letters. And I do remember there was one issue um, where they were playing Scrabble. Mm-hmm. And I was putting the actual Scrabble points on the tile. <laughs> yeah. That's that level of detail. Not much many people notice. Bob Harris said you can't do that because it's a copyright. Oh no! Maybe it's Hasbro or something will come after them. So, you know, I'm just going to point out that just one of the things I miss about about comic books in general, and we get to see it here a lot, is just those little asterisks that let you know, like, hey, this happened in this issue. Yes. So here in issue two, we get some of those. And again, this is going to go back to this being the original days of, of digital. We, they're actually like digital overlays. You can see how how different they are. They're not just regular like caption boxes. Like It's like a little digital stamp that they put on there. Yeah, it looks like a button you can yeah. press. It really stands out over the artwork. Like it, it's just this glaring digital 
but as opposed to the rest of the, the fine art that's on here. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and they reference the first issue like five times in this book. It's like, did they really need to put the caption last issue in <laughs> five times yeah. in this book? But they did anyway. Um, okay. So this book, th- this issue deals with finding out who Penance is, what she's about. Uh, we don't really find out anything about her except that she's got razor sharp skin. Every b- inch of her skin will cut you. And so that's what happened to Banshee when he tried to carry her into the mansion. He got all cut up. And no mansion can hold her because she's got razor sharp skin. So she escapes and the team has to go find her in the rain in a storm. And man, Bahala does some cool, cool rain in this issue too. Yeah, it's not your standard rain. It's like very splotchy and and thick, and uh, uh, it looks great. It's not at all like the rain that I pointed out by Joe Mad in, in one of the X Men issues. Yeah, it's a lot of mixed media you can see in his artwork through through these panels and these pages. So what, one of the things that makes this title so great is that the stakes aren't as high as they are in X-Men. This is, a, this is a superhero book, I think, for people who don't really like superhero books. So while there is action in this, it's really just the team running after Penance as she runs through the forest. There's no, there's no killing involved. There's no like end of the world stakes. Um, but it still is so interesting because the characters are written so well. And so what this book does, or sorry, what this issue does is it pairs up the characters in a way that we haven't seen before so that we can learn a little bit uh, about these characters as they bounce off of each other. So so Banshee and Husk form one team going going to look for uh, for, for Penance. And Monet and the White Queen are another team. So we get to see the interactions between those two. They're, they're a great team. They're a great couple. They are. I love their, their interaction. They're just both just these really uh, strong, powerful, uh, confident women. And they just keep trading these intellectual blows back and forth. Very posh like insults to each other. It's yeah, great. It's really good. And they're so egocentric that they cannot let the other person, you know, be the better <laughs> It's really, really great. Yeah, yeah. And then Banshee, Banshee and Husk, their 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 interaction is really good because you get more a lot of good development with Husk on here. Cause this is where you see her trying to be a little too eager to to impress and to be like a leader. And she's, you know, saying the wrong things and making the wrong strategy moves and and things like that. But you also get to see Banshee in that uh that headmaster role and teaching. Yeah, what I like about that also is that he doesn't know what he's doing. And so he is actually not full of confidence himself. Mm-hmm. And we get this sort of, I feel like a father-daughter dynamic between these two characters where he's protective of her and she looks up to him. So I like that that aspect as well. Yeah, there's a lot of really great character scenes in all four of these first issues. Yeah, Skin wanting to stay back. He didn't want to be a part of the... Uh, of, of the uh... The, the main group, he wanted to just kind of be the, the person behind the keyboard. Yeah, and his reasoning is great. And and because it's like he's, her ability, Penance's ability is to cut your skin. And so why would Skin want to go out and put himself in that, in that, in harm's way willingly right. like that? So Where he has six extra feet of just loose skin all over him that can be, you know, cut and hurt at any time. Yeah. Okay, so my favorite page in this issue is the page, the big image of Chamber. What is it, like the, the sixth issue, sixth page in or something like that, uh, where he's just standing looking over his shoulder. 
Yeah, that really the big one. Had, yeah, the art. Yeah, I see what you're talking about. And you can see the 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 star or whatever that's inside of him coming out of his back, and his his head is just kind of hanging there because he doesn't have a neck and he doesn't have a mouth or a jaw. So his head is just kind of suspended, floating there. It's very creepy, and you can see like the flaps, the little bits of skin that haven't been burned away yet, just kind of hanging there. <laughs> it's like yeah. And then the rest of his face is kind of crackling, and yeah. you know, I like how his hair kind of, kind of really kind of blends into the the fire. Just the way Bahala put it together is great. And I it's feel so cool. that the hair is like it flies around because the heat of the fire is causing the air to like blow it around all the mm-hmm. time. <laughs> so amazing design. Unfortunately, this is not a design that just any artist can pick up and do. Like anybody can draw Banshee, anybody can draw Jubilee. Not everybody can draw Chamber. <laughs> oh no, no, he he's one of those ones that it, it'll make or break you trying to draw him. Yep, you know you got to have the he has a certain look, and you have to have that style that fits that look. So the uh, the on the second to last page of this issue, we get a little tease of a villain we're going to meet in a couple of issues. And if you are a longtime X-Men reader, you recognize this guy as Orphan Maker, but his costume is falling apart and we don't know why. He's calling to Nanny. So that's a big mystery. Um, admittedly, when I first read this issue, I had no idea who Orphan Maker was. So I just saw this as an odd thing that I was hoping they would address in a future issue. That's exactly where I was with this character. I was like, who is this, this assassin? Yeah, exactly. And why, you know, and what's the what's the ordeal with uh, with Monaco? Is this is this the same Monaco as we meet M in? You know, things like that. So oh yeah, even just this one page, yeah, this yep. one page interlude really like you know brings up some questions. I said earlier that I thought um, M was from Algiers or something, but no, it's Monaco. That's right. And so this guy, Cartier Saint-Croix, is, uh, we're assuming since Saint-Croix is Monet's last name, that we're assuming that this is a relative, possibly her father, but we don't know that for sure. Okay, moving on to issue number three. This one's called Dead Silence. Uh, and this is a great issue because we get to learn more about Penance. Not really. We don't really get to learn more about her, but we learn about a little bit about the way she thinks. And so while she is wild and feral, she still has strategy. We saw that in the last issue because she burrowed underground and, and pulled Paige into it. But in this issue, she's got one of her razor-sharp fingers on Banshee's tongue so he can't use her power. Obviously, she's been paying attention to what he can do and has figured out a way to counter that in order to protect herself. So that's a very, very cool thing. We get more interactions with these characters like um, Everett and Jubilee get teamed up. And uh, and then there's the fantastic scene at the very end where Jonathan comes in and is the one who can calm down Penance. Um, really, really great. A great scene that that has minimal words because he doesn't need to say to say anything to Penance to make her understand that he understands where she's at. Right. They both share some kind of trauma, and they could they could feel that within one another. Yeah. Very cool. And that plays out through the rest of the series too. Yeah. You know their relationship and whatnot. So. You kind of see it spark off here, but this is a great, great, great issue. This is this is so much fun. Yeah, there's a lot of action in this one as well. In fact, this is the one at the very beginning of this issue. Husk transforms into stone. She pulls off her skin. She's got stone underneath, and they waited for the third issue to show us like Paige's actual real power, not just pulling off a layer of skin, but the transformation underneath. Like that's something that I figured they should show off in the first issue, but they didn't even show it off in the second. They waited till now. And we're actually not going to see that again in issue four, 
Uh, we'll see it in the Age of Apocalypse, but it's going to be a little while before she pulls off her skin again to show us something like this underneath. I'm surprised they don't do that more often. That's such a cool power for her to have. Yeah, but in a way, I like that they don't do it very often because then that means that when she does do it, it's extra special. It's like, That's very true. you know, if Wolverine didn't pop his claws for three issues, then when he does pop his claws in the fourth issue, you know it's serious business. You're crazy, Curtis. That never happened. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I just remember the X-Men cartoon where he's like five times in every episode, he pops his claws out. <laughs> <laughs> just because. Just because. I, uh... For no reason. Uh, so here's the first appearance of Mondo right here in this issue. Yep. We get one page where he's just sitting on the beach with his girlfriend Cordelia. And we get the sense that he's done something heroic, but we don't know what that is. And we just don't know anything about him. We don't know why he is there. We don't even know where this beach is. That's it. So we'll find out more about him way later. Not anytime soon. <laughs> this is our first glimpse at Mondo. Like in the actual issues. And then we don't see him again for a while, but we get a different version of Mondo in Age of Apocalypse. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Yeah. And then also through this issue too, Curtis, we get a lot of like fun and to get a, a good look at how, uh, how Sink's powers kind of work. Yeah, it's true. And I, I like how they give him this. Uh, we've seen it before, but you really see it here. This kind of a rainbow kind of like rubber band thing. That, that's his, his aura. Yep. So it's actually some kind of a visual to to his power as opposed to just saying, oh, yeah, I'm copying your power. You can actually see his power of him copying it happening, you know, with this uh, rainbow aura that they have on him, which is great. It's very cool. And it's something that I think we wouldn't have seen uh, if it weren't for the digital era. Like it's such a computer specific design. Um, in fact, we didn't even see it in the Phalanx Covenant at all. So, yeah. No. And that's why I like that they did it because now, now you have a visual to his power. Yeah. This page also has another one-page little tease about Orphan Maker. And uh, on this on this page here in the bottom row, we can see Nanny has also shed her typical egg outfit. It's just sitting there in the front yard. So these characters are both getting an upgrade. And unfortunately, this these new designs, I don't think they ever use these new designs ever again. No, I didn't even, yeah, they always use the original egg design. In yeah, they go, they go back to it. So it's kind of weird. I, I really like the design. I have that action figure, the Orphan Maker action figure based on this new design, and it's so cool. <laughs> but anyway, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Um, this... This kind of, other than other than Mondo, now we have the full complete team because Penance plays a vital role in the team moving forward and everybody's together now and we're going to figure out uh, how to move forward as a team. There's a little, um, on the very, very last page, there is a, uh, a little circle with Monet in the, in the Santa Claus hat saying that next issue is our ho-ho holiday story. And I want to point that out because this is something that made Generation X unique in these early years is, is breaking the fourth wall and talking to the reader. You know, you didn't see that kind of thing in X-Men, but Scott and Chris actually did that with Generation X quite a bit. So and it kind of starts here. Yeah. And that's a very fun thing in here. That's very unique to Generation X uh, until we get it more with like Deadpool and, and things like that down the road. That's right. Okay, Generation X Holiday Spectacular. This is issue number four. It's called Between the Cracks. This is a Christmas issue. And uh, you can tell because the border for every one of these pages has 
Christmas bells on it, like wrapping, it looks like wrapping paper. And there are these little elves drawn in the borders that, you know, interact with the with the background. And they even say things that relate to the pages. It's kind of funny. This is the kind of thing, because Mark Buckingham is the inker in this. Mm-hmm. And this is the type of thing that he would go on to incorporate in his artwork when he becomes the main penciler in Fables. He learns a lot of that here by partnering with Chris. Yeah, Fables is such a great book too. And I'm glad to see Mark Buckingham kind of move on to that. But yeah, he does bring some of this stuff with him. That's that's, that's very true. This issue, man, this issue was so good. It's a standalone issue about this boy who's kind of taken a classroom hostage. He's deformed. He's a mutant. He's, he looks very ugly. All he wants, though, is his teacher to teach him. But for some reason, he's ended up in this hostage situation that's spiraling out of control. And Generation X happened to be passing by and Skin uses, I'm sorry, Sync uses his powers to determine where the mutant is. And he finds out that the mutant aura is actually coming from this ice cream truck and it's contained in, and inside is the orphan maker. The orphan maker has come to make an orphan out of this kid, Elliot, who's in the school because his parents don't care about him. So his human parents don't care about him. So why should they make the decisions about him? Uh, what I love about this issue is that um, Jubilee learns a big lesson in this one. In the last issue, she sort of made fun of Chamber or didn't believe that he was, would be the person to, uh, to, to, to calm down penance. She, right. she kind of looked on, on that in disbelief that he was the guy that was able to do what nobody else could. And he did it through talking. And so now when Jubilee finds herself in the same situation, she does the same thing. She has immediately learned from that. And she just talks to Elliot and is able to calm him down and save the day. And I just love that. I, I love the parallels between these two issues and, uh, and seeing that progression in her character. Really, really nice. And I also like the idea that not every battle has to end in some giant fist fight. Right. Yeah. You know, that there are situations that can be talked through and not, you know, resort in any kind of like violence or, or, or high activity. And that's a really fun aspect of her character, too. And in fact, the only reason Orphan Maker is here is to kind of up the action level in this issue. Because he serves no actual purpose. If he was not in this issue at all, things would progress the same way because the hostage situation would still be happening. He's only here because I wonder if the executive said, we can't have an issue with no supervillain, with no fighting. Like that just doesn't seem right. So they had to put this guy in here, maybe. <laughs> yeah, even though they kind of, they built up to him for a little bit too. Right, exactly. Kind of an anticlimactic end to Orphan Maker's story, unfortunately. But <laughs> Right, the yeah. story here with the, the poor disfigured uh, boy and, you know, his teacher and the, the, the bad situation that happened with his teacher having the heart attack and everything uh, is way more interesting than, like, these, like, I don't know, maybe, like, five panels worth of Orphan Maker. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> it's just heartbreaking. It is so heartbreaking that the one person that cared for this kid, Elliot, and the one guy who Elliot seemed to really love dies in his arms because of the situation that 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 is that's happening here. And at the very end, Jubilee says, the teacher lost his life on account of trying to be there for the kid. And the saddest part, according to Sink's power, Elliot isn't even a mutant at all. He's just ugly. Apparently he was born that way, feared and hated for being different. And then Skin says, a mutant without any of the benefits of being one of us. And Sean says, but he is one of us, son, in the only way that truly matters. He's someone who fell between the cracks. And I love it. That sums up this book completely right here. These are 
characters who have fallen through the cracks and they're trying to make the best out of the situation that they're in. I love it. It's also a, a great tale for, for a Christmas issue. Yes. You know, it, it didn't have to be all about like giving presents or it could have been like some kind of like party at the, at the, uh, at the school or, you know, or, you know, secret Santa or, or something like that. It was a, a touching story where you learn a couple of lessons and it has just that overall spirit of giving and overall spirit of understanding that, you know, Christmas is kind of built upon. So we get that out of it. Except it's not a happy ending. No, not at all. <laughs> no. Yeah, it's not a Christmas episode in that sense. Nothing's tied up in a neat package at the end. We don't even know what happens to Elliot. Does he like, does he go to jail or juvenile detention or whatever? Or like, how do his parents react to the situation? Hopefully he's okay after this, but who knows? We're going to have to ask uh, ask somebody about that one. Yeah, right. Whatever happened to Elliot from, uh, from Generation X4? Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so this brings us to the, the final page. And here's another fourth wall page right here. Jubilee comes up and starts reading the next issue blurb. And it's describing stuff that she has no idea what, what it's talking about. The Emkron crystal, death of Xavier, generation next. What is this crap? She says. <laughs> and, she t- <laughs> and then she crumbles it up and starts talking, um, you know, talking about her own thing. And meanwhile, all of the panels are being crystallized or iced over. And um, they even give us a little hint in that in the the last panel of the second tier, we see the word, which I'm assuming is Mondo, because and that's the thing about this is like because of Generation X was actually uh, there was a lot of lead time between when they first announced it and when the first issue actually came out. And so everybody knew about Mondo like for the last year, everyone's known about Mondo. But like we said, we only see him once in these first four issues on one page. And yep. so to have Jubilee say Mondo here was a big tease, I think, to all of the the, the people who had been following the journey of the origins of, of Generation X here. Um, and of course, this big ice, what does this mean, Gabe? <laughs> this is this is the uh, the moment where Professor X was killed and all of uh, X-Mendom changes as Age of Apocalypse begins. So if you look at any of the last issues of any of the X titles before Age of Apocalypse, everything ends in being crystallized. Uh, And usually they work it into the story. But for this one, they've worked it into this uh, fourth wall breaking narrative right here. So it's pretty clever. I love it. Pretty funny. Wow, that brings us to the end of what we're going to talk about today. General thoughts, Gabe, after we've discussed. It's it's great. I mean, from beginning to end, that this is... I said it before, um, this is a great epic collection for somebody to grab if you've never read Generation X before, or maybe even never even read the X-Men before, and you want to kind of get a kind of small level, close quarters stories, this is this is great. It, it, you get a complete story with the Phalanx Covenant, you get great introductions to these brand new characters who you never really get to see interact too much, maybe a little bit down the road, like with the main X-Men characters, they all basically exist through Generation X. And then this is just a great time to spend with these characters as they grow and develop and, you know, and become friends. Because at this point, they don't really like each other. So we're going to get to kind of see that a little bit more going down the road. Yeah, yeah. And it's going to be great. It's going to be a fun ride. And uh, I think that if uh, people are hesitant I don't know, sign up for a free trial on Marvel Unlimited and give it a shot because it's it's worth it. I think it's totally worth it. It's especially if you are tired of the huge crossovers or you're tired of just like another end of the world situation. It's just a refreshing change. It's, it's nice to look at and it's fun to read. 
And then we're going to go in the next episode when we tackle the, the last half of this book, we're going to go into some really weird places that show that this this book can literally go anywhere it wants to. It, it's not being contained to just school adventures like we saw in this in the first half of the book. I'm excited for that. Yeah, the rest of this is is so good. Can't wait to talk about the next half of it. Great. Well, uh, thanks for for joining me today, Gabe. And make sure everybody out there can check out his uh, Omni Bros uh, YouTube channel and uh, and check him out on Whatnot to see what he's uh, up to selling these days. Um, but yeah, thanks everybody for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. Adios, everyone.